Uh, one last quick announcement, and that's make sure you don't miss church next weekend. Next weekend, Pastor Lance will be back, which will be exciting. And then uh, if you've been at Bridgeway for any length of time, you know that each year we have a yearly theme that kind of guides everything we do for the year. So this, uh, this current year that we just finished, 2017, was the year of purpose. Before that, we had the year of identity. Next week, Pastor Lance will be sharing with, with all of us our theme for this coming year. He'll be telling you what books of the Bible we'll be studying and just kind of casting vision for, for what I certainly believe is going to be a very exciting year here at Bridgeway. So you will not uh, want to miss that. Uh, make sure you're here next weekend. But for this weekend, uh, we are finishing up our two-part series, the shortest series you can possibly have, uh, called Realign, Taking the Guesswork out of knowing God's will. And in case you weren't here last week or you just need a little refresher, I want to recap a little bit of what we talked about last week, and then we'll get into some new stuff for this week. We started off last week by saying that God wants us to know his will. God wants us to know his will. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 instructs us, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God wants us to know his will. But we said that if that's true, that raises some questions for us. If God wants us to know His will, why is it often so hard for us to find it? If God wants us to know His will, why is it that you and I have such a hard time, especially in what we feel like are the big moments of life, why is it that you and I have such a hard time discovering what God's will is? And we said last week that there are a few different categories of God's will. If you're a note taker, you might want to write these down. This is review from last week, but this might be helpful for you. We talked about how last week there is God's will of decree. God's will of decree is everything that has happened or will happen. When God sets out to accomplish something, it is simply done. That is God's will of decree. And there are numerous places in the scriptures that testify to God's will of decree. And then we talked about God's will of desire. God's will of desire, which is a reflection of God's heart. A reflection of God's heart. So when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that was not a decree in the sense that Jesus simply spoke it and it happened. But rather it was an expression of God's heart, an expression of God's desire. And if God's will of decree refers to his works... God's will of decree refers to his works. God's will of desire refers to his ways. His ways. His, the ways in which he calls us to live. The ways in which he has designed the world to work. But then what we said was there's a third category of God's will. And it's a category of God's will that you and I are going to have a really hard time finding in scripture. And that is God's will of direction. And God's will of direction refers to specific direction in the non-moral decisions that you and I have to make? Should I move to Roseville or Lincoln? Should I take this job or that job? Which church should I attend? Should I give to this charitable cause or that charitable cause? Should I order the McRib or the filet of fish You know, these sorts of things. Which, if those are your two choices, you are already outside of God's will. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> but these are the sorts of decisions, maybe not the lunch decision, but these are the sorts of decisions that stress us out, aren't they? These are the sorts of decisions that we really wrestle with. God, what do you want me to do? I'll follow you where you want me to go, but which is it? Choice A or choice B? I need to know. And what we said last week was that the problem with this perspective, the problem with this perspective is that when we obsess over God's will of direction, what we're doing is we're asking God to be clear in an area where he never promised clarity. 
He asked, we're asking him to be clear in an area where he never promised clarity. What we do is we treat God like a magic eight ball where we just kind of want to ask a question and give him a little shake and find an answer. When the truth is that is not God's way. That is not God's way. Instead, God is a loving God who gives us brains, who gives us his word and shows us what obedience looks like. And then he invites us to walk with him so that you and I can be the sorts of people who can make wise and courageous decisions. So then last week we introduced a different and much better and frankly more biblical way of thinking about God's will. And we said that God's will for your life has much less to do with questions of who, what, when, and where, and is much more concerned with why. God is much more concerned with the why than he is with the who, what, when, and where. So, for example, God is much more concerned about you being a person who, as Micah 6.8 says, does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with your God at whatever job you take than he is with the specific job you take. God cares a lot more about why you want to move than the specific house you move in and move into or the specific neighborhood you live in. God cares much more about why you do the things that you do than the specific things you do. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that God is much more concerned with why you want to get married and what kind of person you are going to be in marriage than he is with the specific person that you marry. So rather than being obsessively, obsessively concerned about choice A and choice B, God is concerned with your heart. God is concerned with the why. He's saying, what is going on in your heart? Because he's saying, listen, if you are walking in my ways and you are seeking my kingdom, we can make choice A or choice B work. But if you're seeking your own kingdom, if you, if you have no regard for my ways, then it really doesn't matter if you choose choice A or choice B because you're going to be outside of my will because you're not walking in my ways. God is much more concerned with the why than the what. And we said that God's will for your life, kind of our big line from that last week, God's will for your life is that you would walk in his ways. God's will for your life is that you would walk in his ways. And we said that if you want to know God's will, walk in his ways. Because if you walk in his ways, you'll be in the center of his will. Every time I say that, I feel like Dr. Seuss. (laughs) But I'm going to say it again because it's important. If you want to know God's will, walk in his ways. Because when you walk in his ways, you are in the center of his will. And the beautiful thing is, that means that you and I, we can be in the center of God's will in a moment. That in the moment that you and I open ourselves up to God and say, God, I want to walk in your ways. In that moment, we're in the center of his will. You and I, we may not have been in, the, been in his will yesterday. We may not have been in his will an hour ago. But in that moment where we say, God, I want to walk in your ways. In that moment, we're in the center of his will. We also said last week that God is much more concerned with today than the future today than the future. See, you and I, we wring our hands, we get all nervous and anxious and all this other stuff. God, what's going to happen in the future? God, what's going on next? God, how is this situation going to work itself out? God, give me clarity for X, Y, and Z. And God's like, listen, you don't know the future. There's a reason for that. You couldn't handle the future if you knew it. But God said, I know the future. So that means you don't have to. You can trust me with the future and you can seek first my kingdom today. You can trust me with the future and you can seek first my kingdom 
today. See, our call as Christ followers is not to gain some secret knowledge of the future. It's to serve God today, to obey His will as it has been revealed to us today. And the beautiful thing is, does does God have a will for our lives? Sure He does. Does God have a will for your life down to the details? Sure He does. Absolutely. And we can rejoice in that. But is it up to you to discover God's exact plan for your life before you make a single decision? No. No, it's not. Life is hard enough as it is. You do not need that kind of paranoia. We discover God's will, again, by living out what He has called us to do in the moment. In the moment. And then trusting Him with the future. We said last week, and this is, this is a huge point that has been just game-changing for me. We said last week, That if there is a decision in your life that involves God's will of desire, in other words, if there is a decision in your life that involves walking in God's ways, then in those cases, God has been clear. God has shown us what His ways are. And the reason why God has been clear when it comes to His ways is that decisions that you and I have to make about seeking first God's kingdom, decisions you and I have to make about being a person of character and integrity, decisions that you and I have to make about being a person who loves our neighbor as ourselves, decisions that you and I have to make about generosity, those sorts of decisions, ideas and concepts about which God is clear, our commitment to those things will impact our lives Far more than decisions about who, what, when, and where. We might not believe that, but it's true. It's true. And for that reason, on those issues, God who loves us and wants the best for us has been clear. That's why God, for example, has very little to say. I keep coming back to this example, but very little to say about what job to take and a whole lot to say about how to work for God's glory, right? And then when it comes to these sorts of non-moral decisions, God doesn't show us the future, nor does he expect us to figure it out. Nor does he expect us to figure it out. Instead, he gives us brains and invites us to be people who make wise and courageous decisions. And so I want to spend part two of this series, the remaining time we have today, talking about how do we become those sorts of people? How do you and I become the sorts of people who make wise and courageous decisions? How can we make hard decisions? And what we're going to find this week, when it comes to how to make hard decisions, is similar to what we discovered last week when, when it comes to how, to how to discern God's will. That it is both simpler and harder than many of us realize. It's both simpler and harder than many of us realize. Now, you can probably tell by my scrawny yet doughy physique that I am not a great athlete. And that is true. I am not a great athlete. But I do enjoy outdoor activities, and and doing things outdoors has been a big part of my life. I've had the opportunity to do some some really cool stuff. I've had the opportunity to climb Mount Whitney. I've had the opportunity to hike to the bottom of the Grand Canyon a few times. I've climbed Half Dome in Yosemite several times. I've completed a marathon. I've done a few adventure races. I've done a few of those, like, Tough Mudder-type events that make you think, you know, it's just too easy to survive in America if we're seeking these sorts of things for our recreation, right? Like, I've had the opportunity to do a few of those things, and, and... And they're exciting and I love them and I'm always thinking about my next adventure. A great year for me is a year that involves at least a few days where I'm kind of pushing myself to my limits physically. I love that kind of stuff. 
And as I look back on those big moments in my life, it's exhilarating just to think about them. I remember standing on the little U.S. Geological Survey marker at the top of Mount Whitney, the highest point in the continental United States. It was really cold, but it was an incredible moment. I remember camping at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, just amazed at just God's grandeur. The grandeur of his creation. I remember crossing the finish line in that one marathon I ran. And I just was like, man, I can't believe I actually made it. This happened. Now, here's what all of those big moments had in common. Here's what all of those big moments had in common. Those big moments were the result of a thousand little moments leading up to them. Those big moments were the result of a thousand little moments leading up to them. And what happened is in those big moments... Those big moments were hard, climbing the mountain, running the race, doing that stuff. Those big moments were hard, they weren't easy, but they weren't unnatural or weird. Why? Because they were just like I practiced. Because they were just like I practiced. I had imb- what I had done is leading up to those moments, I had embraced a lifestyle designed at producing certain Results. I did not wake up on one morning in December of 2012 and just sort of roll out of bed and say, well, you know, I've just been laying on the couch and eating Cheetos for the last six months. I think I'm going to run a marathon in a monsoon today. No, that's not what I did. And it was a monsoon. That day came at the end of a process of training and rest and nutrition and treatment and medical care and all of that stuff, right? That got me to that moment. That got me to that moment. And in the big moment, again, it was hard, but it wasn't unnatural because it was just like I practiced. What's the point? Wisdom is the same way. Wisdom is the same way. Wisdom in the big moments does not come from panicking and stressing out in the big moments. Wisdom in the big moments comes from a wisdom-producing lifestyle. The ability to make wise and courageous decisions comes from a lifestyle that is conducive to wisdom. And what's so strange is that even if you're not a runner or an athlete, you know that what I just said about marathons is true. That if you just decide one day to run a marathon with no training, that is going to be a sad and miserable day for you. (laughs) Frankly, it's going to be a sad or miserable day even if you have trained, but it's going to be worse if you haven't, right? (laughs) Right? We know that is true. Yet many of us seem to subconsciously think that wisdom is going to be available on demand. And that's just not true. That's just not true. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is something I said just a moment ago, and that is that wisdom comes from a wisdom-producing lifestyle. Wisdom comes from a wisdom-producing lifestyle. That is not complicated. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. See, and this is why... This is why God's will is so much more about today than tomorrow. God's will is so much more about today than tomorrow. See, so many of us, so many of us, we waste today thinking about our great tomorrow when the reality is your great tomorrow is not going to come from dumb luck. Your great tomorrow is not going to come from talking about your great tomorrow. We all know people who talk about a great tomorrow but are doing nothing today. And what is that? It's a joke, right? Your great tomorrow is not going to come from God sort of giving you a crystal ball and revealing the future, your great tomorrow will be the result of a lifestyle of faithfulness and wisdom. Your great tomorrow is going to be the result of a thousand smaller decisions that start today. 
that points you in the trajectory of a great tomorrow. And here's the, here's the best part about that. Is that your great tomorrow, whatever that is, listen, if, if you and I, if we adopt a wisdom-producing lifestyle, your tomorrow is going to be filled with blessings and challenges, to be sure. But a wisdom-producing lifestyle produces a great tomorrow that is not simply a moment. It's not simply some big crescendo event that now all of a sudden you've accomplished your purpose in life. When you and I embrace a wisdom-producing lifestyle, your great tomorrow is just your life. It's just your life. It's a life that is the fruit of a wisdom-producing lifestyle. It's a life that is the fruit of daily intentional choices. Daily intentional choices. Now, I'm not against social media. I think social media, you know, whatever. Social media is fun. But one of the challenges of living in a social media culture is we see results and not process, right? We see results and not process. So we see the person who's celebrating, hey, I lost 50 pounds, which, way to go. Like, that is absolutely something to celebrate. So we see, hey, man, I lost 50 pounds. That's fantastic. What we don't see is we don't see all the exercise that went into that, right? We don't see, like, here's a Facebook Live video of me choosing the kale salad when I really want pizza, right? <laughs> like, we don't see all those little moments, right? Or, or we see the picture of the great meal, which I still don't understand why we're photographing our food, but whatever. We see the great meal... But we don't see the sink full of dishes. Or we see the graduation photo, but we don't see all the late nights and weekends at the library and all the effort that went into that moment. Now, what I'm not saying is I'm not saying we need to start filling up Instagram with photos of sinks full of dirty dishes. Like, we don't need that, right? But what I am saying is a couple of things. Is Number one, seeing results but not process. Psychologists know this. It is increasing depression because we're comparing other people's highlights with our outtakes and that's just never going to go well right and i think what it's also doing to us what it's also doing to us it is it is subconsciously causing us to think that processes are easy and that great results are easy and that is simply not true that is simply not true it's not that social media is bad it's just we have to be realistic about the fact that it is causing us to underestimate how difficult processes are that losing a bunch of weight is hard. Getting a degree is hard. In the same way, a lifestyle of wisdom, it takes intentional effort. It takes intentional effort. Wisdom in the big moments comes from a wisdom-producing lifestyle. So I want to take, take a few minutes as we start 2018 and talk about what a wisdom-producing lifestyle looks like. We're not going to teach through a passage today. We're just going to kind of look at a few different, few different short verses and passages and as we talk about what a wisdom-producing lifestyle looks like, I want to talk about our hearts, I want to talk about our expectations, and I want to talk about our surroundings. Hearts, expectations, surroundings. So number one, wisdom comes from a heart that is open to God. Wisdom comes from a heart that is open to God. And every single one of those words was chosen carefully. See, God's will for your life is not begrudging obedience. God's will for your life is not a life of saying, well, I guess I better. God's will for your life is not doing just enough to be able to think of yourself as a good person, however you define that, right? God's will for your life is that you would receive your identity from him, that you would understand that you are his beloved son or daughter, that you would understand that you were bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus, that you are precious to God. And that from that place of secure identity, you would then be so transformed by his love that you would long to live a life of joyful obedience. 
That is God's heart for you. Because And I love this. We look at the life of Jesus. We look at the life of Jesus. And, and Jesus, his life from the outside looked like a life of intense obedience. Or excuse me, intense discipline. And it was. But it was not a life of begrudging obedience. The early morning prayer, the investment in his disciples, the ministry of preaching and teaching. All of this was the fruit of Jesus' love for the Father. And he pursued these things, why? Because he desired intimacy with his Father. See, for Jesus, discipline was not the point. Discipline was the means to the end. And so many of us treat our spiritual lives like it's discipline, as if that's the point. If we can check enough boxes, we're good. When God's heart for us is that we would see discipline as the fruit of love, and that discipline would be the thing that connects us to the one that we love the most. Is there a place in our lives for discipline and self-control? Of course there is. But see, God wants to give you and I the gift of real friendship with Him. So that we're motivated by love, not simply by discipline. Because see, love will change your life. Discipline only lasts so long. In fact, some of you... Some of you were just entering into a new year. I don't know what kind of thoughts you've had about New Year's resolutions and all that stuff. But some of you who are here today, you may, one of your New Year's resolutions might have been, okay, 2018, I'm going to be in church more. 2018, I'm going to go to church more uh, in, this, in this new year. And this will probably not come as a big shock to you, given what I do for a living. But, like, I think that's a good idea. Like, I'm, you know, Brian, where do you land on the whole church attendance thing? Like, pro, that's, that's a good idea. I would encourage you to be in church. It'll connect you to God, connect you with other people. It's good for your life in a number of different ways. Like, church or no church, I generally say church. That's a good thing to do. But can I give you a better New Year's resolution? Just take this and do with it what you want. Instead of resolving to be in church more often, which, you know, that might last a couple of weeks, Instead of resolving to be in church more often, resolve to be more open to God's love for you in this new year. Resolve to be more mindful of the reality of God's love for you. Resolve to be more mindful of the truth of 1 John 3, 1, which tells us, see what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Resolve to simply be more aware of God's love for you. Because listen, if you do that, first of all, you'll be in church more. You'll be in church more because you'll be more mindful and more transformed by God's love. But you'll be here for the right reasons, as an act of love, not simply as an act of religious duty. Resolve this year to be more open to the reality of God's love, more open to the reality of God's presence. I read this great little story a couple of weeks ago where a young Hasidic Jew approached a famous rabbi and he asked him, Rabbi, what is the way to God? It's a good question to ask a rabbi. What is the way to God? And the rabbi looked up from his work and he answered, and I swear this rabbi is Yoda. You'll, 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 you'll get this after I read this. This is what the rabbi said. He said, there is no way to God, for God is not other than here and now. The truth you seek is not hidden from you. You are hiding from it. That's good stuff right there, isn't it? But think about how profound is that? God is not hiding, waiting for us to find Him. We talk about God's will. God's not like standing around the corner hiding His will saying, let's see if she finds it. Like, that's not God's way. That's not God's way. God is here. God is now. God is with us. God is in our midst. God is present in your life. In the big moments and in the seemingly mundane moments, what's absent is awareness. What's absent is awareness. Perhaps is it true? God is not hiding from us that we're hiding from Him. Maybe this new year, this just needs to be a year. I've been thinking about this in my own life. This needs to be a, a year.
where we're just more conscious of the reality of God's presence. More conscious of the reality of God's presence. Because listen, God wants us to have hearts that are open to Him. God who loves us and wants what is best for us wants us to have hearts that are open to Him. Because when our hearts are open to Him, our desires change. We long for obedience. We long for His presence. Our, our life of spiritual discipline is about connecting to the one who our soul loves. I love Psalm 37 verse 4, which tells us, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. We talk about realigning. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, it transforms our desires so that our desires for ourselves are the same as His desires for us. Thomas Merton says that our lives are shaped by our loves. And that we're eventually formed into the image of that which we desire. We're eventually formed into the image of that which we desire, and that's really true. And if our greatest desire is for anything else, there's nothing else in this world that can possibly fulfill its promises like God can. And wisdom comes from aligning ourselves with our Heavenly Father so that our desire is to know Him, to rest in His love, to be transformed by His love, and seek first His kingdom. That's a heart that's open to God. That's a heart that's open to God. Number, number two. So wisdom comes from a heart that's open to God. Number two. Wisdom comes from appropriate expectations. Wisdom comes from appropriate expectations. See, part of the reason why you and I struggle to make decisions is because we have wildly unrealistic expectations. And again, this functions a lot more subconsciously than consciously, so I'm just going to try to bring it into our, our consciousness. You're welcome. Um, here's what happens. I'll give you an example. We live in an age of unparalleled choice. I'm quite confident that no generation in human history has had as many choices as we have. So, so to give you an example, there is no such thing as a regular pair of jeans, right? There's standard fit, there's loose fit, there's baggy fit, there's straight fit, there's straight slim fit, then there's slim, and, or, and then there's skinny, and apparently that wasn't enough, so we've gone to super skinny now. And then there's dark wash, there's light wash, there's acid wash, there's stone wash, and I know I'm not even scratching the surface here. Now, if, if the wash, if that's not enough to kind of mess things up for you, you've got distressed, that's, like, that's a thing. And if th- those jeans aren't messed up enough for you, you have destroyed, where they just like rip them this like i am not making that up like jeans are marketed in this way. that's unbelievable right so so you cannot there is no such thing you cannot simply go into a department store and say i'd like a pair of jeans can you help me any more than you can go into a grocery store and say well i'd like some food can you help me right right it doesn't work i'll be a little more specific than that and here's the challenge Listen, having choice is fun like there's nothing inherently wrong with choice but here's the challenge is psychologists have found and this is true that increasing, cho- increasing the number of choices does not necessarily increase the quality of our choices. But what it does is it increases our expectations. Surely if there are 9,000 varieties of genes, I ought to be able to find the perfect pair. Right? So what can happen is we can, we can buy the best pair of genes we've ever had in our lives and be disappointed. And be disappointed. Because we think, if I had this many choices, surely something must be better than this. There's a TED Talk by a social psychologist named Barry Schwartz called The Paradox of Choice. And I would commend it to you if you haven't seen it. And he talks about this. He talks about jeans, and he talks about jams, and he talks about salad dressings. And how we just have too many choices, and it's making us miserable, basically. Uh, And another author I read a couple weeks ago said this, which I thought was funny. He said, I have never seen a happy child at Toys R Us. 
There are simply too many toys there and too many choices that they have to make. It overwhelms kids and adults, right? See, much of our struggle with discerning God's will comes from the fact that we just have a dizzying array of choices. And again, I'm not necessarily saying choice is bad. I'm just saying it's a reality. And, and I, would, I would hazard a guess that previous generations to our own did not struggle with finding God's will nearly as much as we do today simply because they didn't have as many choices that we do. Where am I going to live in the town you were born? What am I going to do for a living the same as what your father did? Who am I going to marry, the girl or gentleman across the street? God has revealed his will to you. (laughs) And listen, hey, I prefer the setup we have now to that setup. Don't get me wrong. But why does having so many choices stress us out so much? I alluded to this a moment ago. When we have so many choices, we think that one of these choices must be perfect. Thus, anything less than perfection is unsatisfactory. And when we expect every decision we make to lead to our ultimate fulfillment... That makes decisions about what house to buy or where to send our kids to school or where to go to church or, heck, where to go to lunch. It makes these decisions take on a weightiness that is far beyond what is appropriate, right? Because after all, if there's a perfect choice out there, we better find it. And then even the slightest flaw leads to disappointment. Even the slightest flaw leads to disappointment. After all, essentially what's happening is all of these choices, and there's a point to this, I promise, all of these choices are making, are turning us into wimps who can't handle hardship. All these choices are turning us into wimps that can't handle hardship. Now, if that causes you to be unsatisfied with your salad dressing, that's probably all right. You'll come back from that one. But what about the person who can't hold down a job because they expect every job they have to only be awesome all the time? Or or what about when you discover that your church that seems perfect for the first like hour and a half that you're there, you realize, you know what? The people there are humans just like everybody else. And it's got some flaws, right? Or what do you do when a friend slights you? Do you give up? Do you continue your sort of foolish quest for perfection? Or how about this? Here's a big one. What do you do when that perfect person you married, you discover that they are almost as irritating as you are, right? I've been doing some teaching on this in in some different settings, and I've been reading numerous articles from both a Christian and a secular perspective that are hypothesizing that part of the reason why so many marriages struggle is because we have far too high of expectations for our spouse and not nearly high enough expectations for ourselves, right? See, in work, in marriage, in church, in so many arenas of life, joy comes from faithfulness and longevity, But when we leave at the first sign of trouble, it's hindering our growth. When we have unrealistic expectations, it hinders our growth and it hinders our ability to impact the world. Psalm 1830 tells us this. It says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 1830. What's perfect? God's ways. God's ways are perfect. If we're looking for perfection in this life, look to his ways. On the other side of any big decision you make, you are not going to find perfection. You're going to find a series of blessings and challenges. God doesn't promise to be perfection in life, but he promises to be a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Now, in that TED talk I referenced a moment ago, which by the way, have any of you seen it? Paradox of Choice, Barry Schwartz, go home and watch it. It's great. This is what Barry Schwartz, who is not a Christian, this is what Barry Schwartz says is the secret to happiness. You ready for this? 
Barry Schwartz says the secret to happiness is low expectations. Low expectations. Now, when I first heard that, maybe you're thinking what I thought when I first heard that. When I first heard that, I thought that is the most desperately cynical thing I have ever heard in my life. But as I've thought about it some more, I thought maybe that's actually not true. First of all, that is how I survive as a fan of the Sacramento Kings, by the way. I expect them to lose every night and then like 20 times a year. It's like, wow, hey, this is great. But on a more serious note, that perspective can obviously lead to cynicism and I think there's some problems with it. But what, and that's not what I'm advocating, but look at it this way. Again, on the other side of every serious decision you're going to make is a series of blessings and challenges. Now, do your homework so that you can maximize the blessings and reduce the challenges. But recognize you're not making a decision where on one, on one decision is complete blessing and on the other side is abject misery. That is simply not true. That is simply not true. In fact, the presence of challenges in your life are not a sign that you've missed God's will. They're not necessarily a sign that you've made the wrong choice. And what you can do is in those moments when you're encountering the challenges, you can remember that God's heart for you is he would use every situation in your life to grow you into the character, character and competency of Jesus. And I think about the words of FDR who said, a, who said a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. Right? That perhaps God might be using the challenges you face, not as a sign to say you've done wrong, but as a sign to say I'm going to use this situation to grow you in my image and likeness. Now, there are a couple of short passages in the New Testament that have helped shape me in this. There's one I'm going to have you open to, and it's Philippians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open there. Philippians chapter 4, page 992, if, if you're using a Bible in the, underneath the seat in front of you. This is a familiar passage. Paul is writing from prison, and I want to read starting in verse 10. Well, essentially what he's doing is in verse 10, he's thanking the Christians in Philippi for his concern, for their concern for him, excuse me. And then he makes a really, just a subtle but incredibly important point. He says this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. If you're reading in your own Bible and you write in your Bible, circle, underline, star, something, that word, content. Content. Paul says, listen, I'm not out there looking for perfect fulfillment in every decision that I make. I'm not expecting all of my problems to magically go away. I have learned in whatever situation to be content. What does he say that is? He goes on, he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I have learned to be content in all things, Paul says, because I know where contentment is found. I know he is the one who strengthens me. So I'm not out there looking for perfect contentment, but rather I have received contentment from God so I can make decisions from a place of contentment, not from a place of desperately seeking contentment. There's a big difference there. There's a big, big difference there. The second passage, and you don't need to turn there because it's just one verse. 
Pastor Lance taught through this verse recently, and it's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, where Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. To, to use kind of some of our vocabulary, there is great gain in walking in God's ways and finding our contentment there. Finding our contentment there. Now, we need to be really clear, real quick, that there is a difference between contentment and complacency. That you and I are not called to complacency. Complacency would say, well, things are never going to change. I guess this is how things are always going to be. So why do I even bother trying anything in Jesus' name? (laughs) Right? That's complacency. That's complacency. Contentment, contentment says in whatever situation I am in, in whatever situation that I'm in, I, don't, I might not know how I got here. I might, I might be able to look back and see some decisions that maybe, maybe weren't the best. I don't know how I got here. But contentment says, in this moment, God has me here for a reason. God is not hiding from me. He is present in these circumstances. So I will be content in Him. I will serve Him and seek first His kingdom today. If things need to change, I'll work for change. But I'm going to find my contentment in Him. And I'm going to seek first His kingdom today. I'm going to seek first this, his kingdom in this moment. That's contentment. That's contentment. Should we have low expectations? Is is Barry Schwartz right? Actually, no, I don't think he is Uh, because we serve a good God who created a beautiful world, but we should have realistic expectations. And with that, and we don't have time to get into this with that, we, we must be diligent to banish entitlement as best we can, right? Because impossible expectations mixed with a sense of entitlement destroys both our wisdom and our courage. When you expect every decision you make to lead you to a state of sort of sustained euphoric bliss, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. You're setting yourself up for disappointment. And then one more area real quick, one more area real quick where our expectations get out of whack is too often we expect or we want hard things to be easy, right? There's a reason why we call hard things hard things. If they weren't hard, we would call them easy things, right? And too many of us, what we want is we want God to make things easy. We want God to make things simple. And what I love about you, look at the life of Jesus. And in Jesus' life, he was about training and releasing. He invested himself in a group of men, trained them up so that they could be released into the world to live out his character and his competency. And God wants to do the same with us. God does not simply want us, want us to, you know, hey God, can you just do tricks for me and make my life work out? That's not God's heart for us. Instead, God's heart for us is that we would sit at His feet, that we would study His Word, that we would know His ways, then that we would walk in those ways with courage and wisdom. God's heart for us is, is 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we would behold Him in His glory so that we can be transformed into His likeness that we would behold him in his glory so that we would be conformed into his likeness. God does not want to make everything easy in your life. I just don't think that's true at all. But what he does want is he wants you to behold him, to walk with him so that you can approach hard decisions with wisdom and with courage. So wisdom comes from an open heart to God. Wisdom comes from appropriate expectations. Last thing, wisdom comes from godly counsel. Once again, not complicated. Wisdom comes from godly counsel. You will be a wise person You will make wise decisions. If you surround yourself with wise and godly people who have the courage to tell you the truth, and if you have the courage to listen to them. Because here's a fact that's true about you and it's true about me. There are decisions in your life 
where you are simply too emotionally attached to them to make an objective and wise choice on your own. There are, I don't care who you are, you could be the most self-aware, intelligent, educated, da-da-da person in the whole world. There are decisions in your life, just as there are decisions in my life, where you are simply too attached emotionally to make an objective and wise decision. So you and I need godly people in our lives who from a place of emotional distance can provide some counsel, can provide some counsel. When it comes to our non-moral decisions, so many of the non-moral decisions that tie us up into knots, what we really need is the counsel of wise, godly people who can see our blind spots. And listen, I'm not saying we put every decision up to majority vote. Like, I just reality in my life and probably in yours, there are times when I just have to make unpopular decisions because I know it's the right thing to do. But I, what I am saying is that more often than not, that we would see the complexity of our decisions reduced if we would simply engage with godly counsel. And then similarly, I just said hard decisions are hard for a reason. I think we would see the difficulty of hard decisions reduced if we would simply engage with godly counsel. Sometimes godly people will keep us from making a wrong decision. Maybe we're looking for a job and we're just doing everything we can to find a job and this godly counsel would come to us and say, hey, listen, you are extraordinarily impatient and you have no discernible interest in kids. I don't think the kindergarten teacher job is right for you. It's just saving everybody a whole lot of challenge, right? Right? Or sometimes, as is often the case with me, maybe this is the case with you, what a wise counselor can do is just help you realize you're overthinking something. That you are sort of, sort of over-spiritualizing or overthinking yourself into passivity when what you need to do is make a wise and courageous decision. I've had numerous times where I've walked into Pastor Lance's office or Pastor Parnell or Pastor Matt or, or some of my friends from, you know, from school and, and all that, and I'm just I'm wrestling with a decision. And I sort of know my own weakness for overthinking stuff. And I'll just walk in and say, hey, I feel like I'm overthinking this. Can I talk it through with you? And we'll talk it through, and they'll say, yes, Brian, you're overthinking it. Just make a decision, you wimp. They're usually nicer than that, but they would be justified in saying that, is all I'm trying to say. Some of us, godly counsel can just help us make a decision, get out of our own heads and do something. Get out of our own heads and do something. See, oftentimes, our struggle to discern God's will is a reflection of the isolation that so many of us experience. See, we're all busy but we're busy doing things that pull us apart instead of busy doing things that bring us together. So too many of us lack consistent contact with people who we can count on to give us wise, godly advice. And when we value relationships in our schedule, that produces the context where wisdom can flourish. That produces the context where we don't have to kind of grasp around on our own in the dark, but rather we can ask godly friends to share their counsel with us. There are so many different places in Scripture we could go to, to talk about the value of godly counsel. But two quick verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 19.20 tells us to listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And then Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. We, we need each other. In a world that is settling for pseudo-community all over the place, we need each other. That's why missional communities are so important. Listen, I know you don't need something else in your schedule, but I do know that you need people. And I need people. We need godly counsel. We need each other. So, in the end, 
Wisdom comes from a wisdom-producing lifestyle. It does not come by accident. When faced with hard decisions, what should you do? Choose today to adopt a wisdom-producing lifestyle so that when you encounter those decisions, you can encounter those decisions as a person with a heart that is open to God, who is steeped in Scripture, who has appropriate expectations and is equipped by wise counsel. Make the decision today to approach those moments as that person. Then pray for pure motives and a wise and discerning heart and make a decision. Make a decision. God has not promised to make things easy or clear, but God promises to give wisdom and God promises to never leave us nor forsake us. So I just want to, just as we wrap up, my my charge to you as we venture into this new year, May this be a year where your heart is open to God, where you are mindful of God's love for you. May this be a year where you study the scriptures. May this be a year where you walk in God's ways, where you consider others before yourself, where you invite other godly friends to join you on your journey of life. And then from that place, may you do what you want, when you want, where you want, And with who you want. And may you do that with the confidence of knowing that you are walking in God's will. Because when you walk in God's ways, you are in the center of his will. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the prayer team to come on up. I said this last week. Some of us, we're facing decisions and we need to pray for a pure why. We need God to purify our motives. We we need the the godly counsel of people we can trust. This prayer team would love to pray for you and help you in that. Or if there's anything else you need prayer for, they'd love to pray for you as well. So let me pray for all of us and, and, and we'll be done. God, thank you that when we walk in your ways, we're in the center of your will. So, so I pray, just as I stated, that we would enter into this new year with a people who have a heart to walk in your ways a heart to walk in your ways, a heart that is open to you, a heart that longs to learn from you, that longs to grow in your character and competency. I I pray that we would be people who have appropriate expectations, understanding that perfection is found in you and that we're going to face challenges in any decision that we make. And I pray that we would be a church that knows each other so that when we need godly counsel, there are relationships we have cultivated that we can lean on. And as we do that, then I pray that we would live in freedom not tied up in knots, afraid of missing your will because we chose the wrong who, what, when, and where, but rather we would live in freedom with a pure why. And that our why would be that we want to seek first your kingdom and we want to bless your people and we want to show the world a touch of the love that you have shown us. So Holy Spirit, empower us to live in that way for your glory and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Happy New Year. Have a great rest of your weekend.